Hey there, changemakers, and welcome to the Seeding Social Good podcast by Turnkey. I'm Katrina Van Hus, chair and founder of Turnkey, and this podcast dives deep into the innovative solutions that are shaping our nonprofit community for the better. Whether you're a CEO, a seasoned fundraiser, or someone who's just curious about making a positive impact, you're in the right place. Each episode, we chat with thought leaders, trailblazers, and all around amazing humans who are putting social good at the heart of what they do. Ready to be inspired? Well, in today's webinar or podcast, depending on how you like to consume your content, Kate Barnett and I will give you a way to share information that helps listeners really hear you and helps you understand why some people just can't get through to you. Here we go. So Katrina, can you explain sure. why you felt like this webinar would be important for people? Yes. Um, so Gestalt Language Protocol is something that Turnkey has been using for way more than a decade. Uh, we first were exposed to it when I was the chairperson of the Virginia Council of CEOs. And that is a nonprofit that is purely there. Their mission is to connect CEOs so they perform better at work and live better lives. Uh, CEO job is very lonely with a lot of stress. And this particular uh, way to communicate with each other helped people be together without um, causing a rash because you put 30 or 40 CEOs in a room together and everybody wants to be in charge. So they had to develop a way for people to exchange information without, you know, chaos reigning. So that is where it came from. Um, Young Presidents Organization and the Entrepreneurs Organization both use this protocol with uh, leadership as well. The cool thing is, though, it works everywhere. Um, I learned it uh, with the Virginia Council of CEOs, but I quickly began to use it uh, with my family because it simply makes life better to do this. A lot less stress on me and on others. And um, my husband quit accusing me of trying to CEO him all the time. So that was a positive outcome. Um, so that's what it is. And Kate is gonna teach us how to use it. And I think you'll enjoy this. Please put in the chat your reason for joining us today and your city. And Katrina's gonna call some of them out. Um, we have a, a Calvin from New York who wanted to expand his listener toolkit. I love that, that's great. Uh, Velma says, I always wanna improve how I communicate with others, listening is key. Uh, Tamara says, I work with clients who need assistance with communication skills. Uh, Patrick in Chicago, hi Patrick. New to my Oregon, always looking to improve communication with colleagues to fuel our mission. Uh, Terry Chadwick, hi Terry. Um, trying to be a better communicator. All right. Here's what we're going to talk about. The psychological principles at play when you give advice versus when you tell a story, how to recognize advice when you hear it or when you say it yourself, you can catch yourself in giving advice, how to give the gift of your experiences that are so, so, so valuable uh, and help your audience, the person that you want to share them with. And then how to stop yourself or others from giving advice. So when you've recognized it, how do we intervene and turn the conversation to be a little bit more productive? So first we'd like to talk with you and set some uh, definitions for level setting on what is advice and what is storytelling. Um, because the one thing, again, we'd like for you to walk away with today is the ability to discern in your everyday conversations, the difference between advice and storytelling and when people might start to go from one into the other. It can happen very stealthily, very, very stealthily. So um, what is, is the summation of our experiences plus our interpretation of those experiences? 
that we then wrap in a beautiful bow for the listener. And we might feel really good when we give advice because we feel like we've done some of that legwork for the listener. And we feel like we're giving them the gift of not having to go through the harsh experiences that you might have experienced in your life or the, the just the work of through the experience. You're just telling them, Here, here's the clue. All that stuff. Here you go. It's a gift. And what I have found is that I think that it is. And um, we're robbing them of the opportunity to weigh in with their experiences to come to conclusions. Uh, in this. So advice is your experiences plus your interpretation. Versus stories are compelling because the experience of listening to a story engages some really fun areas of the brain that Katrina is going to get into when we talk a bit about the psychology piece. But you're going you're gonna to learn how to properly tell stories today. Stories are when you talk about your experiences and you remove that interpretive lens uh, that makes it advice. And this is what happens when you do it wrong. So we're leading with what, what can go wrong uh, and why advice is bad. So Katrina? Certainly. Um, so people have a great need for autonomy and we have that need both consciously, we know we're having it, and unconsciously, meaning we will perform some behaviors because we're seeking autonomy that we may not realize. So we go to great lengths to preserve our personal autonomy. When people tell us what to do, give us advice, even when we pay them to do so, like people pay us to give them advice sometimes, we actually feel our personal autonomy threatened. We experience what psychologists called reactance. So that feeling that you get when somebody tells you what to do and you know, yeah, that's probably the right thing to do. It's probably helpful, but you still don't want to do it. That is what you're feeling is reactance. Um, sometimes you know consciously that it's happening and sometimes you don't know that it's happening. It's unconscious. And, and when it happens unconsciously, you will create a story about why your reactance makes sense. You'll figure out a narrative that makes it okay for you to do the wrong thing because somebody told you to do the right thing. That's really crazy and weird. And yet that's how we're built. Um, one of the things that I have noticed in myself is if I say something like, hey, you know what? I should go do this, whatever it is. I should, uh, I should make chili for supper. And if someone says, yeah, you should do that, I immediately begin to question, should I make chili? I'm not sure. Maybe I don't want to make chili now. That is how strong reactance is. It, you is, that even... spite? <laughs> yeah. is that Katrina being spiteful or is that reactance? What is it? Don't exactly. tell me what to do. Exactly. So that is reactance in a nutshell. And what about the storytelling pieces of what's happening in the brain when storytelling is happening? Yeah. So the, the opposite of that reaction, reactance, meaning I'm pulling away, I'm leaning back, is when I'm leaning in and I feel like I'm part of the story. So when someone tells us a story, um, we hear the story, we hear the emotion, we hear the reactions of that person as they tell their story. Um, and it turns out that we we literally feel the same thing. Um, we are equipped with uh, fairly recently discovered mirror neurons. So when we hear a story, we totally hear it and we feel it and we experience it as if we're there. So what that means is that we've dropped all defensiveness. Nobody's telling us what to do. Nobody's threatening your personal autonomy. Instead, we are listening completely open-hearted, open-eared, 
uh, ready to receive the information and experience it as if we are that person. So the mirror neurons are responsible for that reaction. How do we make sure we don't cross that line into advice and we stay in storytelling? We do that by maintaining objective testimony. One of the reasons we don't tell people what to do is that our advice is the sum of our experiences. So the basis of my advice to someone else is that experience plus that interpretation that we talked about. So we all do this. Um, but when you add in your interpretation, it might not apply to that person's world. They have more information in the situation. They have different experiences from you that they've lived. And so we want to make sure we remove that interpretive lens completely. We want to just state facts when we're sharing our experiences with a person. So um, the way we do that is to speak in the past tense. Give as many details as you can. Don't generalize. Uh, feel emotion as you give your share. If this is something that I share with the other person, um, it's probably gonna be of immense value to that person that you're sharing it with. And don't say in my opinion or, or generalize and say, oh, when that happens, this is what I've done. Because the more specific that you can be, the more the mirror neurons that Katrina talked about are gonna be activated. And the more the person's gonna actually relate and feel that story with you. When you start to summarize multiple experiences together, it's gonna be harder for that person to relate what you're sharing because it isn't specific enough. And then not saying I think or I believe, just stating what happened. Um, one of the things I wanna talk about, Katrina touched on it lightly, is you know, what happens when reactance starts? You know, we, it's the psychological principle. Um, we know the mumbo jumbo that you know, you know, everybody talks about. I want you guys to know and be able to feel the physiological things that are happening when reactance is at play. So how to know you are experiencing reactance or you're seeing it in somebody else. You stop feeling heard or understood. Your shoulders go up. You know, we talk about this, this body language. You lean back and away from the conversation or you cross your arms in a defensive pose instead of leaning forward. You might actually feel your hackles go up um, or you might feel like the conversation is over. If you're doing this correctly, the conversation shouldn't really ever feel over. So those are some of the physiological things that can happen when you are not telling your story and doing these things, speaking in the past tense, feeling your emotion, being detailed. I see a lot of friends on the webinar and I also um, notice that we have a lot of high level executives here. And so it's interesting to me, um, and I, I see one friend uh, from across the pond, who is, uh, I wanted to share with you, Kate, she says that she's considering a new role that would require shaping a dysfunctional executive team without direct authority. So mm -hmm. in those situations with a lot of exec high level executives, you know, when you think about it each and every day, we tell people what to do. It's like a knee jerk response. We are decision machines and we will tell people what to do in a heartbeat. And you would think like, isn't that the fastest way to get it done? but it really doesn't matter. Like whether I'm getting paid to give advice or whether I have paid someone to give me advice, when they communicate with directives, with advice, with opinion, I can't help it. I still react this way. It's just the way we built, you know, evolutionary psychology has us doing this. This is a, At the end of the day, we are using a survival technique that 
was evolved tens of thousands of years ago, and we're using it in the boardroom to react. So we are not well equipped for getting advice. Back to you, Kate. All right, the gift. So you have shared your experience using objective testimony. At this point, to stop and say, and so, and add that interpretation at the end, and wrap it up with that beautiful bow, and hand it to the person with your interpretive stamp on it. Um, but when you do that, it could feel, you know, it could cause reactance from the recipient. So that and so is an indication for you to kind of catch yourself and go, ah, I'm going from storytelling into advice sharing and I need to stop myself. This can mean a couple of things and, and I encourage you to, to let it happen. This might mean an awkward silence might happen after you stop yourself after your story. This might mean you feel like you stopped in the middle of your sentence because you didn't add a conclusion. Um, both of those things are actually very positive in this protocol. It helps allow the other person to then take that pause or take that moment at the end of your share to start to think through their experiences and weigh them together to come up with their own conclusion. So we do ask that you do not wrap it up with a bow and give the, the ugly present, if you will, as we go into the holidays. Um, we ask that you stop yourself at the end of your experience sharing. All right, so up until now, we've talked about you know what's good and bad. We've done some level setting on definitions. Um, now we wanna get into how to apply this to um, more daily life. So when someone shares a challenge with you, let's just say in a meeting or in, in, a, in a boardroom like Katrina was talking about, um, and they engage in a conversation with you and it's clear that they want your input. Know what I said, input and not advice. What do you do next? So somebody has said something that they have on their plate, what do you do next? And what you do is you ask questions first. Um, and I know all of you probably do this already. You don't jump straight to solution. You wanna ask questions and see really where the person is coming from, uh, what they're struggling with, which part, um, things like that. So the purpose of the questions is not always, or not only, I should say, not only for you to understand where the person is coming from, but it's also for you to sift through the experiences that you have, because let's face it, everybody on this webinar is deeply experienced and probably can think of five, six, seven things that they could share with this person um, for any given problem. So what we wanna have the clarifying questions do is serve as the ability, that filter for us to know which of the experiences of our life we really wanna bring forward. We wanna pluck out and bring forward and, and share with this person using that objective testimony approach. And asking questions can be very tricky. As we mentioned earlier, uh, advice can be very stealthy. The way you ask questions can sometimes be the way you give advice. So here's what I mean by that. A not great question would be XYZ. Have you tried talking with a person to see if you could resolve it on your own? Have you tried going to your boss? Have you tried? Have you tried? Have you tried? Um, that's advice. That's advice. Um, instead, what you could do is say, what have you tried already? What has worked and what hasn't worked? Um, and, and other questions like that. So other good questions would be, um, how does leadership see this challenge? If it's a work-related uh, question, how does your leadership see this? Uh, is the board receptive to this? And then one of our favorite questions at Turnkey is, what will happen if you do nothing? After you've asked clarifying questions and you know which of the stories you have from your past that would be the most 
relevant and pertinent to the person sharing with you. You then share your story, which again, we talked about how to do that, your objective testimony. And at this point, I would encourage you to share not only what's worked, but also what hasn't worked. So successes and failures. How have you been burned in the past? What happened? Um, so being honest as well with yourself. If you don't have an experience that's really relevant to them, say so. And what you can do instead of giving advice arbitrarily and feeling like you have to fill that void in that conversation, what you can do instead is say, I actually don't have any experience with that problem. That might help the person still feel very heard and seen um, without you having to contrive advice um, to share with them if you don't have any experiences. Sometimes at this stage, people realize how much advice they give without direct personal experience with that challenge. You know, there's always the old wives tales, for example, of your ears burning. Like, have you ever experienced your ear burning and, and that exact thing happened? Mm, no, but it's hearsay. People say that that's what happens. So that's the advice that you're giving, right? Um, so that might be a, a pleasant surprise that you have is that you, you don't actually have any experience to share. Something that you can do at that point as well is think to your network. Who do you know who's maybe gone through something similar that you can connect the person with? And that way you're still engaging in the conversation with this coworker um, and you're still helping variances that other people have had with that, um, but you're, you're helping to be a conduit for them finding that connection. Hey, can and of course, get their permission first. I do wanna say that. Sure. Get their permission first before you go to other people to find somebody to connect them with. Katrina, do you wanna yeah. add in? Um, I did, you know, uh, knowing some of the folks on this call who are in very high level positions and who are charged with um, not just leading, but teaching. And um, when you think about what Kate said earlier about how your advice and opinion, that is what you're teaching, but the method is really important. And bringing your advice and opinion to a subordinate as you try and bring them along in their career, without the context, they really don't know what you told them. They don't, they won't get it because you've encapsulated it to the point that it's super fast and easy to impart. And they're like, yeah, well, uh, you know, Patrick said, go do this. I'm going to go do it. They don't know why, because they don't have the context for your decision. So even though, you know, are there moments when you just deliver a decision, decision or your opinion and advice and your subordinate goes to do it? Absolutely. Um, you know, I actually did a, this training for um, a group of policemen uh, in, in uh, a county. And they were, they really had a hard time with it. And finally I realized, I'm like, oh my God, you know, these are guys who are pulling people over who are toasted behind the wheel. You know, they're making a decision. That is not for this, right? Totally different scenario. You know, hurricane coming and your biggest event is on the coast of Florida. You're making decisions. We're not doing it this way. But in terms of bringing along subordinates, training, teaching, and establishing relationships, this method works great. Uh, we have had over 2,500 challenges shared with us in the forums that we have and we host uh, that we call convenings and alongside groups. Uh, next week, we're going to be hosting our 33rd in-person convening of thought leaders. We're very excited to have our group of CEOs next week. Uh, and currently, as of this moment, we have uh, 20 active alongside groups. We've had over 100 in total uh, since the pandemic started. We, we have these as a virtual uh, way to practice this protocol with each other. And these groups comprise of CEOs, CFOs, CSOs, CMOs, Cs, and Os uh, abound. 
uh, live streamers, uh, innovative or innovation directors, um, et cetera. So we can help with um, facilitating a session or a meeting that you already have on your calendar. If you already have people coming together, we can help to run this training. Uh, we have done that virtually and in person, for example, with field staff um, and volunteers, uh, walk, walk managers, Another way we've done that is uh, with our convening, uh, the in-person retreat style that we that we host. And you know, a large national nonprofit, for example, brought together their top 20 or so leaders, and we paired them, the 20 leaders, we paired them with others in the space who would have amazing experiences that we knew could be shared uh, in this in this format. So we got the benefit of learning more about the team at large and then also getting some outside perspectives as well. We can also host an alongside group for your ELT for six months or whatever time bound you would like to lay on that. Uh, we could do three groups or, or not. We've also, something I didn't put on this slide, so we have also helped train national staff um, in how to do this so that the field would be better receptive to all the experiences that they had to offer and they didn't feel like they were getting told what to do all of the time by the national office. So it can really help with the, the dynamics at play uh, across your organization. So after that, we wanna talk about some examples. So um, what we're gonna do here is I'm gonna share a challenge or two. Katrina's gonna go through the process with me. She's gonna ask me clarifying questions and then she's gonna share an experience. Um, it's entirely made up. As you guys hear this, please put in the chat a real example that you have um, so we can also role play that. All right, Katrina. Yes. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. I have an underperforming coworker and I don't know what to do about it. Um, we've covered for this person over time. And because right now um, we have to fight for every dollar we're fundraising right now, if, uh, every organization is experiencing that. And so it's starting to, to get to the point where we can't keep covering for this coworker. There, there has to be a change that happens. Okay, I'm gonna start asking questions and the questions are actually to find out more, but really it's to figure out which of my experiences might be helpful. So if a question sounds weird, it's because I'm trying to figure out which of my stories could be helpful here. All right, Kate, so how long has it been going on since they were hired or is this something that started later? It's been going on for about uh, four years and, um, you know, for the first year, we 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 know that we have a, a tougher onboarding. We we wanted to give this person the benefit of the doubt, but we feel like at, at this point, it's no longer um, onboarding or or getting up to speed about our unique mission. This is now not meeting the needs of the role. Okay, so they were hired four years ago. That was their start date, or did yep. they move into that role from another position? That was their start date. That was their start date. And how? How long does your organization typically give someone to come to speed, so to speak? It depends on the role and who their boss is and who you talk to. We don't have a set process. Okay. And what um, what kind of feedback system do you have for performance? The only feedback I think this person has gotten is they've been less to do over time. Okay. That person's um, superior. What, what is their performance like? Is that you? Or no, else? no. This person is actually in a different department. So I feel like I'm not empowered to do anything about this challenge. 
mm-hmm. uh, with this with this coworker. It, it, the political climate is just a little bit messy, and mm-hmm. I feel like um, their their boss, who they report to, mm-hmm. um, would react very defensively if I were to approach about this person. Okay. Do you have a similar set of duties as as the person who's the leading the underperformer? No, I I actually rely on that. We we have very different duties and, and I rely on that person conducting their role so that my deliverables can make it out to market. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think I'm ready if you are ready for my experience. I'm ready. Okay. Um, we had an employee and um, in this particular case, the employee succeeded for a long time and then she began to fail and we couldn't figure out like what's going on. Um, and I was in, uh, I was CEO and um, what I did about it was I asked everyone to give me the same kind of metrics. Each different, each different department needed to give me the same kind of metrics. And what that forced was that they were forced to actually create some metrics. And what I found is that this person, um, the root problem is uh, irrelevant. But what I found is that she had simply accepted more and more duties without any performance metrics that reflected those additional duties. But so by installing the performance metrics that covered the scope of her job, we were able to react to it. And in in that case, what happened was we teased the job apart and made two jobs, one of uh, a much lower skill set and one of a higher skill set. And we were able to judge her performance. And in her case, she succeeded. Uh, She became successful because we changed the performance metrics. And what happened to the team is because everyone was expected to give performance metrics that enabled and enforced some change at the management level. I hope that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Awkward what, did that feel like? what did that feel like for you? Um, you're asking me, and I, am I still in my persona? Yes, please. Okay. Um, what it felt like was frustrating because I just wanted to go tell people what to do. Uh, because, you know, that's that's what people like me do. We tell people what to do. But what um, what happened afterward is that uh, both of my subordinates who were leading other people, um, both of their performances improved because they were more aware of what was going on in their teams. So at the end of the day, it was fulfilling and uplifting. In the interim, it was frustrating not to just get in there and fix it. Um, but the outcome long term was much better. Thank you. All right. Anything in the chat? Any examples we can we can jump? To? Tamara, one member of the team does not pull their weight and is disrespectful to others on the team. However, uppermost management does not seem to understand the impact on the current team. So I think I'm just gonna I'm gonna be Tamara and how okay. you be me. Okay. So here's what it here's the way it manifests. Um, I find that people. Um, this one team member frequently talks over other people, interrupts other people, and um, is uses a loud voice. And um, for example, when we have a brainstorming session, they just don't go well because um, that person is just sucking up all the air in the room with their personal demeanor, you know, just overbearing and loud. And, um, and so the rest of the group leans back. So question for you. Um, is this person um, not pulling their weight in a way where they feel like they're above the tasks that are on their plate? 
or is it more of um, they've accepted that the, those are their tasks, they just underperform on the delivering of them? Um, my sense of it in my uh, imaginary Tamara world is that, um, oh, she said, I think you're in the meetings. My sense of it is that he's covering his um, lack of ability and talent and he knows it. And he's, um, you know, kind of like a look over here, look at the bird, um, you know, with his demeanor so that we don't focus on his uh, performance. Got it. And um, what have you tried? Well, uh, upper management does not seem to recognize the problem, so I don't feel empowered to do anything about it. I'm, I'm frustrated. Okay. And what will happen if nothing changes, if you don't do anything? He, um, that person's behavior um, is impacting the morale of the team, and people are leaning in less and less and less because they're frustrated and meetings are uncomfortable. So I fear, you know, if, if we do nothing, you know, I fear losing valuable employees or at least losing their energy. Um, and that includes me. Uh, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable as well. And frankly, I'm a little disappointed in my leadership that they don't do something. This is in my meetup Tamara world as well. Back in uh, 2015, we had a team um, that in, when on paper should have been just absolutely crushing it. And um, was we had uh, a toxic person who just wasn't getting the work done and yet was the, the squeakiest wheel um, when it came to, to meetings. And we started to all rings. We started to cancel meetings as much as we could because we knew we wouldn't be heard. And we started to do more offline chats um, in or in one-to-one -one meetings which meant that the team just wasn't operating on all cylinders uh, and, and we were all kind of operating in, in more silos because we felt like this person was untouchable. They were the, the sacred cow, if you will, um, to leadership. And um, I was at an impasse, I'm not gonna lie. I let it happen far longer than I should have. Um, and we lost some key clients um, out of that. We had some, some clients who did not renew because this person wasn't checked. Um, and it broke my heart. It absolutely broke my heart because we were all very passionate about what we were delivering as a service and as a tool. And uh, we just we knew we needed to to be better. And so what I did was I went to um, I'm a firm believer in this is my Enneagram type six coming out. I'm a firm believer in um, anything that's really important uh, actually requires a presentation. The more important it is to me, the more I need to present it formally boss and did a formal presentation about what I was experiencing and um, what I saw was happening. And I was open to how they wanted to solve the problem, but I needed to make them uh, extremely aware of what was happening. Um, I went with examples. I went with very specific uh, feedback and, and asked for help in coming to resolution with this person. Wow. You know, even though I know Kate was making up that story, I still leaned forward because I wanted to hear it. And that meant that all of my, all of my protection, my self-protection fell away because I was listening hard to that story. I didn't feel judged. I didn't feel afraid. I didn't feel diminished in any way. I wanted to hear the end of that story. And I will combine that with all my other experiences to come to a conclusion about what I should do next. And I don't even have to say what that is. 
about, you know, one of the things with uh, telling people what to do is that if I tell Kate what to do or she tells me what to do and then the results are disastrous, um, what then? What happens to our relationship? Things go south. And alternatively, if I tell Kate what to do and then she doesn't go do it, I feel some kind of way about it. Like that doesn't make me very happy because like, why does she even ask me if she's not going to take my advice? How many times have we all heard that from our mother? Right. Um, so this avoids, all <laughs> we don't have to feel that way at all. Um, again, there's a time for decisions and direction, and there's a time for building relationships and giving people a deeper and better understanding. And we have found the Gestalt language protocol is a massive win on that front easy to do, hard to maintain discipline, but um, easy to do, easy to understand. Kate? Yep. Um, I would like to, to point out, if you are the person who is sharing in your daily life and the other person you're talking with doesn't know this protocol and uh, you want to help guide the conversation to get into, the, into this protocol, you don't want them to dump advice on you and walk away, what are some ways you can do that, Katrina? Um, well, funny thing my mother's visiting right now so um <laughs> and we're all at home together um so the one thing that i try and do is when i get direction like go do this or um funny story last time she was here she insisted that i needed to have rubber bands in my kitchen drawer like I had nothing against having rubber bands in my kitchen drawer, but the fact that she was so adamant about it, I threw away every rubber band. I'm just like, nope, I'm not going to do it. But what I should have done was this, mom, tell me about the rubber bands. What is it that's got you on fire about rubber bands? What happened? And that would bring forth the story of why she's like so passionate about having rubber bands in the kitchen. That's a silly one. But in any situation, when someone says, uh, you know, and they're shaking their finger at you and the whole thing go like, whoa, 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 wow, you got a lot of passion on this. Tell me why. What happened to you that makes you have so much passion? Tell me the story and just ask for their story. And every time they slip back into the, this is what you should do. Yeah, I, I hear you. But tell me, why do you feel that so passionately? What's happened to you that makes you believe this? And you're, you will have done a couple of things. Number one, they will be tremendously flattered that you cared enough to ask. So your relationship will be improved. Um, you'll get better information, much more accurate information, and you can continue to redirect to the real thing. All right. Well, that is um, everything that we had for you guys today. We hope that this helps guide your daily conversations, how you go about things with your teams at work, and even how you talk with your teenagers at home. Um, we have found that it is really, really impactful, and it's changed how we talk to each other everywhere at Turnkey. So uh, we hope that this was helpful. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, we love to see you guys. And let us know after this webinar if you have any specific questions or scenarios you want to talk through with us. We'll help guide you through it if it's helpful. Well, that was fun. A big thank you to listeners out there for tuning in. Remember, change starts with just one person, you. If today's episode got your gears turning, don't forget to share it with your network. And hey, why not drop us a review on your podcast platform? It helps more people find us and spread the good. And subscribe. Oh, wait a minute. Did I just should on you? Let me try again. When I have subscribed to my favorite podcast, it's made me terribly happy. How's that? 
Until next time, this is Katrina signing off from the Seeding Social Good podcast by Turnkey. Stay inspired, keep making waves, and let's create a better world together.